0: Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by my friend James Lilacs. We're returning to our reflections on middle brow. So James, the season is upon us and we're looking for middle brow subjects that are sort of closer to our time and maybe have something timeless about them. We've been talking about Christmas. Tell me about Christmas movies. That's our bailiwick. What's on your mind?
1: <laughs> well, first of all, Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. I just need to put that marker down right away. Everybody will always say that it is, but it takes place on Christmas. He, yeah, it does, but it's not specifically about Christmas and contains no Christmas magic. As much as we all delight at the sight of Hans Gruber flailing as he falls off the side of the tower, it's not really a heartwarming, Christmassy kind of message. So I I will fight anybody on this, and it's one of those pointless things that the internet get riled up about. But come at me, bro. It's not a Christmas movie. Uh, all, <laughs>
0: Yes I think this particular trolling fantasy is dying out. I was talking the other day with Sonny Bunch, the greatest conservative provocateur on Twitter and when I asked him, hey how about we talk about Die Hard, he said, look I'm really getting tired of this idea that it's a Christmas movie. At this point only my teenage nephew is still interested and I'm pretty sure this means that we will be watching the movie sometime during the Christmas season. And it's a fine movie. I like it. I like the fact that a generation back American action movies featured blue-collar workers as heroes. I don't mind the white-collar upper-class affectation villain. Hans Gruber is great. I just wish we had not reversed hero and villain. Hans Gruber of the 80s is Tony Stark or Doctor Strange of our times but i leave my pen to blue-collar heroes for another time. Let's get back to talking
1: Christmas. <clears throat> I'll ask you, what's what's your favorite Christmas movie?
0: That's tricky. I'm not sure I have a favorite Christmas movie. I think mostly, I guess it's A Wonderful Life. Because yes. Because I'm a that's... great Capra fan.
1: And... Me too. Because it's shamelessly sentimental. It's just absolutely lethal in its sentimentality. But there's a very dark core of to it, yep. isn't there?
0: Yep. I uh, i hesitated for a little because it's so dark that it almost feels like a New Year's Day movie, like, say, The <laughs> Apartment or something like that. Those movies are always very depressive, but you're mm. right. On the one hand, Wonderful Life is good for life. You can love it as a child, you'll love it as an adult, you'll love it with your own children and forevermore. But on the other hand, yeah, Capra was not just sentimental, he was also deeply aware of why it is that people are looking for Christmas magic.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I mean, at the end of the film, George Bailey is overcome with gratitude because he never got to leave town and pursue his dreams, which is something – a message – I mean, yes, there's many, many levels, many nuances to what Capra is saying there, and we all appreciate that George Bailey stayed where he is. But when you consider that, that moment there, the realization that they're almost – the culture is almost sort of telling people uh, that if they don't get to New York and make it there – That's okay, that there is a life, a a worthy life to be led in the smaller places of America that in their own aggregate are greater perhaps than the people who run off and start plastic factories, hee-haw.
0: Well, it's a story about redeeming a person. It almost requires that you avoid the, if I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere attitude. You have to be with people who know you to see the changes you make in other people's lives. That's part of the genius of Capra. He gave sentimentality the only moral justification you can give it in community. It's admittedly selling America a fantasy that post-war America was never going to retrieve. But it's also of education that's all the more necessary when once people no longer have these kinds of communities that can give form to such sentimentality, which is worlds away from the tendency we have nowadays to talk in superlatives, to call everything awesome the greatest or the worst, as though nothing in between could be real for us. Everything in between is real in that situation. That seems to be what Capra is trying to get at and why George Bailey could be a hero, proud of himself even.
1: Uh, I do want to say this, though. I would have loved to spend a week in Pottersville because it looks like a happening place. Uh, (laughs) The... the the ne the neon the sin the rest of it I mean that really looks like a place where a guy could uh, could have himself a good time not to live mind you but uh, just 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 to hang out
0: yeah it's the PG version of Vegas you could say
1: yes I wrote a story actually it's on my website somewhere and I dr- I trot it out every Christmas and I never read it which is probably wise called it's a wonderful Christmas Carol which is about um, Mr Potter. Being visited by three ghosts on Christmas Eve. And I sort of mashed the two together. And I'm going to have to remember why I did that and what the end of it is. I think Potter's (laughs) redeemed, of course. You can't do a Christmas story where somebody isn't redeemed at the end of it. Ah, here we are. Next question What's your favorite, if you have one, Christmas Carol movie? There are so many.
0: Let's see, I think I'm going to go with the, um, what was it, 39 version? That's the one that I remember most fondly. I I should know the actors' names, but this goes back to my childhood. And uh, as these things go, I always just took it for granted that I knew these things. It was 38, not 39, pardon me, with the original Mm -hmm. Doherty and Gene Lockhart. I'm not sure I could defend it or, or that I would feel the need to in the way I would with, say, It's a Wonderful Life. I'm. I'm not sure. I'd even say it's so good. So it, everything just felt natural about it when I was a kid, and uh, and now of course it just looks hokey. It's uh, right. Uh, the sets. Uh, you have to believe there are mountains in the background and what have. You. Everything looks strange. And on the other hand, if you look at for Marley's ghost with the head bandaged and in chains, it's quite strange. It's quite interesting to see how they made him look diaphanous and how they did the back projection I assume is Mm -hmm. it's a eh, well it's a soft spot thing more than anything else
1: but it made an impression on you as a kid and that that's what counts one of the scariest Scrooges I ever saw as a child uh was Mr. Magoo for some reason <clears throat> that one just the 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 death in the 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 ghost of christmas future in mr magoo was absolutely terrifying to me possibly because we saw it on the color television at my grandfather's place we didn't have color tv at home yet and so i'd gone from the black and white scrooges to all of a sudden this vivid image in this otherwise very strange little piece of animation which is beloved by many and i'm not exactly sure why it's very stylized it's very 60s upa and not crazy about it but it's but it but it made an impact at the time so Mm -hmm. that movie drilled into me and the other one which i probably saw on some saturday afternoon around the time was the the 1951 Star sims version which to me was always Mm -hmm. the greatest the greatest my favorite, because for whatever reason, the look, the feel, the way they captured the Victorian era, the acting, that was the Scrooge for me. Now, when you mention the special effects and how hokey sometimes things look later, if you look at the Patrick Stewart Christmas Carol, it's exquisitely done. The, 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 the sets, the, the the production, the design, it's all very well done and it's one of my least favorites simply because Patrick Stewart seems to be acting. He's acting a lot. And while I love to watch Patrick Stewart act a lot, at the end of it, I just say, well, this is a holodeck uh, uh, program that Captain Picard ran for his own amusement. (laughs) So Uh, you have a 38- That is the only
0: one I really dislike. I'm not sure quite why. I guess it's because I saw it later. It, It is very lush. Everything yes. is almost ostentatious about how it wants to be authentic. But, mm-hmm. but you're right, he's, he's just a very unlikable guy. This was a Hallmark production, and so everything's excessively theatrical. It seems like it was made for an audience that's already aware that this is nothing but make-believe. It's smug in that way. Or maybe a better word is nostalgic for the people in the times when this sort of show was appreciated maybe naively
1: yeah i, I, you know, I was thinking about this the other day too the, um, the when when scrooge goes home and hallucinates marley when he's when he has the first visitation from marley right what does he say he says this is not, you're just a bit of underdone potato. Is that, is that what he says? Something like that. All... It's an interjection <clears throat>
0: joke. Underdone turnip it is. Uh, moldy cheese, beef. Th- these are the examples he gives to say that the senses are easily disturbed.
1: You're right. How many people actually hallucinate the talking version of their dead business partner when they've had an insufficiently microwaved piece of potato? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's covered with the fungus that gave people Saint Vitus's dance or something like that, but still, I don't, I don't believe so.
0: Yeah, I agree. That line does stand out, and the whole beginning of the conversation between Scrooge and Marley, and I think this is Dickens showing some of the stuff that he's up to. Scrooge's materialism is very rationalistic. He's skeptical even of his own senses. That's also, in a sense, part of why he's so alone in the world. He has a certain contempt for his own body, for his own flesh and blood, which is of course the thing that he shares with everybody else. And it seems to come from a moral source, that's the great moral virtue of Scrooge seems to be extreme self-control, he's not bothered by hunger, cold, or things of that kind, and it makes him unkind to other people. But anyway, it's not a great line, you're right that it stands out.
1: Anyway, so uh, Christmas movies I think these days are, are, are hard to do because the artifice required is, is obvious and because the people doing them – well, I – you know, I shouldn't – actually, I shouldn't say that because Hallmark Channel I think turns out something like 25, 30 Christmas movies a year and I'll bet that the, uh, half the people who do those are motivated by conviction and belief as much as money. Because there are Christian production houses out there that are eager to do things that, that, that meet the needs and, and, and coincide with the views of the Christian population. I just haven't seen them. So I don't know if they're pathetic or brilliant or what.
0: I, I just saw the other day a trailer for one of these productions. This one more on women and romance and materialism side rather than Christianity. Mm-hmm. And it, it attracted my attention because this production called A Christmas Prince, whereby a feature writer just like yourself is mm-hmm. sent somewhere in Eastern Europe to to interview a prince. So it could happen for you too, James. <laughs> <laughs> This is filmed fi- outside a- the old. Uh, the exteriors are done at the old King's Palace in the Carpathian Mountains, the Romanian King's Palace. Uh-huh. And it's, it's a lovely place, it's a lovely palace. And of course, it kind of strikes you the wife picked it up like that from the trailer. Hmm. And we checked to the filming locations. Yep, there it is. But uh, those things keep happening. The, the, this was a Netflix production, by the way, so ah. you know they're getting in on the action. Just recently, we had a Ricochet post about this with ample discussion and, uh, I'll admit, very enjoyable sarcasm about all these movies Hallmark is producing every year and running and rerunning, which apparently do have a faithful audience of uh, obedient, wizened husbands and apparently somewhat childish and naive wives. And that's why they run through the merry month of December. I'll include a link in the show notes to the Ricochet post so that uh, people who missed it can read it. It's just very, very hilarious about romance. And about sanitizing even suburban communities or small towns, rural areas, so that they can be perfectly innocuous. At some point you gotta wonder whether these are romantic fantasies or fantasies about everything being prim and proper and peaceful and prosperous all the time. uh, They don't look impressive as storytelling and that's the thing that I liked about the old Movies outside of the Christmas Carol, there's another one that I liked for sentimental reasons. The 1946 Bishop's Wife, with yes, uh, Cary Grant and um, oh, what's her face Teresa Wright and and David Niven. Mm-hmm. I show these uh, to to friends who don't necessarily love old movies as much as I do. But during the season, people are more willing and and interested, and it's always a hit with people. People uh, like the movie for all its sentimentality and all its Cary Grant is an angel, don't you know? Yeah, of course. There's probably a market for good storytelling. In this, but I don't know who's gonna get at it. That was remade with Denzel Washington when I was a boy, but mm-hmm. that doesn't really hit the spot. Talking about this, it strikes me that a lot of these old movies had a certain comic element. You got a sense that the story wasn't entirely serious, you weren't expected to believe supernatural things. But you are expected to take the human drama seriously. And somewhere what we know about human beings and the supernatural meet. There's a limit there. You have to look at rare moments of grace. These are often as stories about providence manifesting itself in small ways. And that's somehow more acceptable because it doesn't have big implications. It doesn't challenge the secular culture, let's call it. And so gradually the comedic atmosphere, the willingness to play along with make-believe turns into something somewhat more serious and gives the writers a bit more room to work with the emotions and the moral implications of looking for a miracle, which is what all these stories are about. And it probably helped that the stars were in certain ways more removed from the rest of America. It made these things a bit more acceptable. Now the movies are very, very close to life in some ways so that it's hard for writers and directors and studios to even conceive of producing this sort of stuff. I assume it feels fake to them is why this is never done. I don't really know new Christmas movies that have an impact on the culture. That tell people, this is Christmas. Christmas in our times,
1: so to speak. No, I, th- I think people are, are, are happy to recycle the old ones, Holiday Inn, uh, Christmas in Connecticut, because it, it gives them <clears throat> the sense of, of connecting with something traditional and historical, even though a movie like Christmas in Connecticut, if I'm remembering the plot correctly, is all about how the modern world has upended Christmas as they know it. Yep. Uh, you've You've got a career woman, for heaven's sakes, who doesn't know anything about putting together anything domestic. Which at the time had to be realistic to people because it you know, she may have been anomalous, but people recognized the archetype. Yep. I mean, the archetype of the, of the 30s writer, newspaper woman, uh, you know, hard driving, hard charging had been around since, since for a while. But I, I mean, she was there for the female audiences to look at and laugh at. You know, she may have freedom. She may be able to go where she wants. She may be living in this incredible place and entertaining a variety of suitors at her age when I couldn't do any of that. But she lacks the skills I have, which make it possible for my to keep keep my domestic environment together. So that's, that's one view. You can read it on all kinds of levels. And then there's The Man Who Came to Dinner. Um, have you seen that movie? Actually, it's a play.
0: I don't – I know the title, but I don't know that I've seen this.
1: Uh, Monty. Monty is the. I'm, I'm going to have to uh, quickly IMDb this because it's been a while well, since i You I've... look
0: it up, and I'll uh, say a few things about Christmas in Connecticut. That's a movie I, I'm especially fond of because it shows you. Uh, That Christmas in the countryside, the white Christmas is already an American fantasy that people in storytelling had better confront. This woman makes up a perfect Connecticut farmhouse housewife life with husband and children and exquisite cooking that her readership can enjoy vicariously. And she doesn't even enjoy it vicariously, so to speak, because Mm -hmm. she she just doesn't get it. She sells people something they want to buy, a fantasy, but she's not part of it even at the level of fantasy. And there is more than a little, as you suggest, of rubbing the character's nose in it, because at some level she would want that too. That there's something to the story that's very attractive because of what it says about the element of love, living in the element of love. And coziness just sells that in a way very few other things can. I've done a bit of writing on this movie and I have some ideas that I'll share maybe in another podcast, but I'll say now that the story is very much about what's going to happen to post-war America. So it's a 45 movie. The protagonist is played by Dennis Morgan. He's a returning veteran who's recovering after spending weeks on a raft after his ship was blown to smithereens. And so his uh, medical rehab is also about uh, coming back to America and good food, which a soldier had had uh, very little, if any, of for years previously. It's home sweet home. And this is what sets off the entire plot about who's a real housewife or do you really want a housewife? What place does home and cooking play in the American life and in American fantasies of domesticity? And so it all starts from an awareness that things have changed and in certain ways they must change. These men are shown to be under the rule of nurses, although they're the soldiers, and having to resort to flirting and all sorts of uh, comedic tricks that you wouldn't think of as manly or associate with war veterans in order to, say, get better food. That's how all this thing starts. And then everybody else gets dragged into this from refugees from Europe to old press tycoons, the aristocracy of Long Island, everybody gets dragged into this. And it's uh, quite hilarious and thoughtful at the same time. And maybe that's what's so interesting about Christmas movies. They're more about coziness than extravagance.
1: Which which puts the man who came to dinner at the the other side of the coziness factor, because it's it's a stage play about this critic who comes to stay with these people. He visits these people on a tour. And he slips and he breaks his hip. So he has to stay at these people's houses over Christmas and his entourage comes and it's even got Jimmy Durrani. Jimmy Durrani comes on. (laughs) He plays a guy named Benjo and Benjo spends the whole movie talking like this. And the the and Betty Davis, of course, is the well, plays Betty Davis, and then and then Sheridan Whiteside plays Monty, who's very funny in that old forties way, where he's always making cutting remarks, and he's the sort of fellow that everybody probably thinks is gay, but he isn't. And it's just, oh god, people love this movie because they love to watch this guy browbeat all these rustic locals and the rest of it.
0: The character really sounds like a cut-rate Mencken.
1: And I – while I'm sure it works fine on the stage and it's – people love it on the screen, I find the main character in – I mean, yes, he's supposed to be insufferable, but he's a mean S.O.B. He's awful. And the movie sometimes when it just gives him a moment to get off one of his zingers just reveals what a pinched sour – just brackish soul that he has. And at the end, of, you know, at the end of it, we're waiting for some sort of transformation. We're waiting for him to learn that these people are. In, and of course, the movie has to do that. But it's it's just it's uh, people love the movie until they. If you watch it again and sort of see it. Not as a hilarious takedown of these rustic yokels, but actually see it as a depiction of one of the most miserable souls you'll ever see on the screen. It it, it changes a little bit. So I, I watch it by all means, but I wouldn't call it a warm Christmas movie. That brings us maybe to a Christmas story, which I think ought to be a more polarizing discussion than perhaps it will be. But what do you think of the movie, which, you know, in its very name says, here it is, the Ur Christmas story.
0: I thought it was funny, but it doesn't seem Christmassy. It's a very cynical story. There's so much failure that, you know, it's only Christmassy at a certain existential level. Christmas is what you're left with after the dog steals your turkey. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was funny. I did watch this last year as an exception to my regular Christmas viewings, I do tend more to something like Holiday Inn or Christmas in Connecticut, but I snuck mm-hmm. that in the program. The ladies loved it, but it doesn't strike me as that Christmassy. The... Well, it has
1: it has a visit to Santa, doesn't it? Now, though, it has the department's. <laughs> I mean, the, the the department store that they show in that movie is is something that I have great nostalgia for myself because if you grew up in an American small midwestern town, there was a department store downtown that had miraculous things like escalators. That had perhaps a mezzanine and a pneumatic system in which they would send tubes going around from, you know, from the credit department down to the shop. And you'd hear these bong, bong, bong to indicate the arrival of something in the pneumatic tube. Or to tell the floor walker that we have a shoplifter over there. The bustle of a small town department store, which Fargo had at least two, is something great and wonderful in American. And it's all so gone where we live now with the exception of the big cities the idea of going downtown for Christmas and seeing the lights and the displays at the windows is something we've lost so I do love the movie just for that but I don't because it's I, I I don't love it perhaps because it was sold to me as the greatest funniest Christmas movie ever people would repeat the lines to each other it's it's got this lamp that's a leg yeah you know, you know okay and, and the line that I've never bought in my life is when he is when the father says, you know, fragile, that must be Italian. No, no, he didn't say that. Nobody thought the word fra- fragile was fragile. No one. And I don't find the kid particularly interesting. And uh, you know, at the end of at the end of it, maybe he should have had his eye shot out. Because frankly, as a parent, I think mom had a point. I mean, I got a BB, I got a BB gun for Christmas. We went out in the woods, and my cousin shot me in the ass with it. So, <laughs> uh, so I remember that sounds well much more realistic. Yes, well, it was. It was a daisy. He pumped that thing up, pump, 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 and let it fly right through the pants of my jeans. Yeah. Wow. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that kid. Maybe it's because I don't want that in a Christmas story. I'm all for Christmas comedy, but uh, everything seems stretched down to the grumpy, sort of incompetent father. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everything is too much of a caricature for a Christmas movie. I get that it's anti-nostalgic in a sense. The good old days weren't that good. But they just seem awful. Ah,
1: you know, we, we we haven't touched much on the animated ones, although I mentioned the because uh, they're not movies; they're television shows. But I I, I mentioned the the uh, Mr. Magoo special, which, by the way, framed the Christmas Carol as a stage play that we the audience are that, that we're what we're watching an audience, an animated well, just still drawn audience watch Magoo play Scrooge on the stage. Why exactly? I've never understood why they had to use that framing device because it begins with a with a four-minute song about Magoo going to Broadway. I'm going to make it! And it's really strange and bizarre that they start a Christmas carol with this urban, almost hallucinogenic, stylized tableau of Mr. Magoo trying to get to the, the theater so he can play Scrooge. There's, there's no reason for it as a framing device, but there it is. So the whole thing is damned odd. But I grew up. The most important thing was was watching um, the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer special. Now that is the defining American Boomer experience for Christmas, right? <laughs> you you laugh. <laughs> you, I'm not a Boomer. You're gonna have Boomers, so you're gonna have to. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Me. All right. Well, th- then you. But at least you can understand that the, the stop the stop-motion animation, the color palette, the fact that they have like white and blue ornaments at the beginning of it. Burl Ives, who when you were a kid, when you were my age, you had no backstory for Burl Ives. You didn't know him as Big Daddy from Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. You didn't know him as some vaguely socialistic folk singer. You just knew him as the guy who sang "Holly Jolly Christmas and came to you in in snowman form in the Rudolph special. And you loved it because it had Santa, it had the great story of Rudolph, it had drama, it had that horrible monster, it had Cornelius Smith the pro or, uh, yukon cornelius the the prospector yep. and there was something something they took out of it that we never understood as a kid uh yukon at one point throws his pickaxe up in the air and it lands and then he licks it and says nope or something like that and as a kid that flew right over your head you could not f- why was he licking a pickaxe was the pickaxe licking an essential part of prospecting in those days it was like underdog biting a coin you didn't get that either and the reason is they took out of the, out of the Rudolph special the fact that Yukon Cornelius was a peppermint miner. He was looking for a great vein of peppermint, so that's why he licked the pick to see if it was minty. They took it out. They but they they took that out, but they left in the pick licking. All I'm all I'm saying is if you're taking out the peppermint reference, take out the pick licking. The other thing. On is, is subsequent realization, you Santa Claus in the Rudolph special is the worst boss ever. He's a horrible man. He's like the, he's like the Sheldon Whiteside from Man Who Comes to Dinner of, of Santa's. I mean, think of it. His wife gets them all together because his employees have come up with a song swearing fealty to him, We Are Santa's Elves. This is as shameless and self-abasing as the North Koreans having to parade before little Kim and do some synchronized dance for fear of death. And Santa listens to them all singing about how we are Santa's elves. And then at the end of it says, uh, needs work and leaves because he's a jackass. And then he goes to, to see Rudolph, who's just been born. Here's a star employee who's just had a kid. And he goes to see him in his cave, which has not a stick of furniture in it. So obviously he pays these people nothing. And he shows up and he sees that the kid has got some genetic anomaly. His, his, yep. his, his nose glows red. And he's really disappointed. So what does he do? He starts singing a song about himself. I am old Chris Kringle. I'm the, I'm the king of ding-a-ling. So if you can imagine any woman who's just had a child and found out that it's, that it's got a genetic defect to it, the boss shows up in the hospital room and starts singing a song about himself and what a great guy he is. You would think, this man is insane. And he is. And at the end of it, you know, he just turns around and says, I know I made fun of you, but can, you know, I might need that nose of yours to get through the snow because even though I've been doing this for years and years and years, it's never occurred to me to have an illumination system in case there's a freaking blizzard on Christmas Eve. So it's junk and it's all junk. And, you know, the little gay dentist and all the rest of it, it's all junk, which brings me to what may be my favorite modern Christmas movie. It's from Ardman and it's called Arthur Christmas. Have you seen it?
0: Um, Animation, military, industrial complex, North Pole, Santa. Yeah.
1: Well, it's 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 a it's by Ardman which did you know Wallace and Gromit, mm-hmm. and which is a a studio of wonderful people who are you know the Pixar's of Plato, if you want to who have a great sense of what makes these things work, the heart, the storytelling, the character, the emotion. And it's about a gawky kid who is Santa's other son. Santa's handed off the operation to his, his competent son, who's just come up with this incredible technological means by which they deliver all the presents, it's wonderful. And the, the bumbling son is the one, however, who goes off with a slightly crazy grandpa who used to be Santa. I mean, you see the lineage of Santa Claus is stretching back on the wall decades and centuries. Um, and ends up, of course, he's the one who's got to save Christmas. Christmas is always in such peril in these movies. It's just, it, you know, it's an inch away from never happening. But it is a wonderful story. And Ardman does a great job with the uh, translating, their, you know, their their look and feel of their clay to computer animation. And it's just got, it's it's funny. It's short enough. It's uh, It's got heart. And it's sort of a, fa- it was a family tradition around here for a while until... Uh, Until daughter out uh, and and she'd seen it enough. I think we're going to give it a couple of years and then we'll go back and see it again.
0: I'll add one thing or a couple of things that the movie is intriguing because it showcases so much the power of technology. If you want to see what Santa Claus is, today we would call it Amazon. It's an industrial corporation that uh, does this amazing, magical job of getting everybody what they want. Well, of course, this big difference, however much you can advance, you're still going to be facing the problem of presents, of gifts, of giving people something good. And that's somehow a a statement about human freedom and what makes us special. Hence the insistence on our individuality. And if one child doesn't get its Christmas present, then that's terrible. That cannot be tolerated. And so Christmas is in peril always because we're always tempted to live well enough alone. And is that so bad? Isn't that a prudent thing to do? But on the other hand, there's got to be more to life or we wouldn't be looking for movies about miracles. So Bumbling Arthur Christmas is uh, such a lovely character because with these new movies where Christmas is about... The North Pole and Santa Claus and the elves, because who else even believes in Christmas? What are the refuges left for myth-making and fantasy? And make-believe, even there you face these uh, family problems of um, Santa Claus who doesn't want to give up a job he's too old for because he loves the adulation. And Grandpappy Santa is uh, going slightly crazy and he's irresponsible. And so why not turn that family operation into an industrial operation like young camo uniform wearing Steve would want to. At least that gets the job done. Well, you need a compliment to that and uh, that's Arthur. I wish the movie had been more successful and of course I hope that uh, your girl will love it again. But you just gotta wait. Well, that's the way with childhood things, isn't it?
1: Yes. Yes, it is. And perhaps there is best we'd leave it because um, otherwise you start talking about uh, Charlie Brown Christmas specials and the way this, this middle-browed jazz, wonderful jazz, defined Christmas for, and, and brought the musical tastes of a, of a generation up another level. I was walking through the office uh, lobby the other day and they were playing a little of the Charlie Brown Christmas special, What Child Is This?, that minor key arrangement, and um, with a little improvisation in it. And it just it, it slowed me down. It made me smile. It made me sad. It made me think of Christmas's past. It made me think of Christmas's future. It was a perfect piece of music. And there are these scenes in these movies, these moments in this music that have the power to take you right back to where you were as a small child in jammy footies looking up at the sparkling tree at the age of six. And then to yourself a few years later looking at your version of that with your child at six looking up at the tree. And then thinking forward to the day when they'll be doing it with theirs. So, yes, tradition. That's the thing. Um, just our tradition is not a Christmas story. And I'm not going to buy my daughter a gun. And I'm <laughs> not going to pretend that somebody is sticking his tongue to a metal pole is funny because it happened to me. And I don't want to <laughs> talk about it. I got to run, nope. my friend. We'll we'll talk again perhaps uh, maybe uh, next next week, next month. Uh, we won't be talking about New Year's movies because it's not like there's a lot of them we can discuss either
0: no no and they're not that fun Um, James thanks a lot for joining me again let's do this again sometime next week Absolutely. And you've taken us on quite a journey through all these movies and with enough to leave over for another podcast another time. There's one new movie that I do like, the Elf Christmas movie. There's a chance to talk about the Charlie Brown Christmas short and so something to look forward to. Take care, meanwhile.
1: And I'll leave you with this. Die Hard 2 is a New Year's, new Year's Day movie. I insist. Come at me, <laughs> Internet. I'll fight you.
0: <laughs> okay. Take care, James.
1: See you later. Bye-bye.